Welcome to the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. You're listening to a new episode of the Founder Pack Podcast, where your host, Brendan Rod, brings startup stories from experienced founders and other functional experts to help current and future founders get inspired and grow their knowledge with quick tactical insights. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Hey, Richard. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks for having me. Yeah, anytime. How's your, how's your week going so far? And uh, thank you for taking the time to join us. Of course. Yeah, I'm doing a workcation thing in Mexico City right now. So, uh, you know, the joys of figuring out how to work out of random Airbnbs. Are you doing a work, uh, a workcation? I don't know how they call it. <laughs> Yeah, I don't like any vacation at this point includes working. So I, you know, I was like, well, it's, it's a bit of both. I don't really know the difference between the two. So thank you for taking time out of your vacation. And perhaps before we, we jump in, just give us like a quick overview of you and your background and what you're currently working on these days. Sure. Yeah. So Regent Computer Science, uh, grad NC State, uh, then turned into a product designer. Um, I worked actually in the first batch of Y Combinator at a company called Tico, which is kind of the answer to a trivia question. What did the founders of Twitch do before Twitch? Uh, I did not end up working on Twitch, uh, cause they had a lot of challenges in the early days, but they weren't design challenges. So instead I started a company called user voice, which is a platform for product feedback, kind of crowdsourcing opinions from your top customers and users, uh, you know, worked on that for 10 plus years. And two years ago, I started a new company called Fathom. Uh, Fathom is completely free, AI beating assistant slash note taker, uh, for your Zoom calls. Uh, and it's been kind of taking off and a lot of fun. Uh, turns out no one likes taking notes on Zoom calls and trying to talk to someone at the same time. Uh, and so we have a completely free product, really easy to use that kind of does all that work for you. Yeah, you guys are definitely making waves because even before I got introduced to you, I found myself seeing your product on calls with some of the agencies that we work with. And then I cool. actually landed up <laughs> trying it out for myself. So I landed up getting to speak with the founder, which is pretty awesome. What made you decide to go into this semi-competitive market where there are lots of players like Gong and Clary and Sales Loft, all these big guys? What made you be audacious and want to jump into that category? I mean, you know, I think most things I've started have been out of some personal pain point. Um, you know, user voice was frustration when gathering feedback at Kiko, the company that I worked at before, and destroyed my frustration around taking notes at, uh, at user voice, right? Like I was doing a bunch of user research calls there and it was like, taking notes is a real pain. And then I try to synthesize them to pain. And then you know, your team, you share your notes with your team and they don't really reflect the cool conversations you had that, you know, those notes are trying to represent. Um, and yeah, I think it was kind of interesting as people tend to look at this and like, oh, you know, aren't there a bunch of tools that do this? But I always think they'd probably need to like, well, I haven't used any of those tools. So I bet there's a lot of people like me that haven't used them either. And it turns out that I think we've been very much largely validated in that. And that a lot of these tools used to be, you know, Gong and stuff been around for Gosh, I think they were 2017. So it was I making it like, you know, seven years now. But the technology required to build these products was so expensive that they were only verticalized solutions for people in sales. And they're very expensive solutions. So while some people had exposure to them, 90% of people in the world have not. 
right? And that's probably underselling it. Uh, and so I think it's, that was kind of the insight there. Like, this is a tool that can be used by everyone, not just salespeople. And oh my gosh, you know, that, that makes it a, be a really big market. Maybe we should address the elephant in the room, except for the cactus, the five meter cactus. <laughs> I'm not talking about that elephant. The elephant in the room I'm actually talking about is ChatGPT. How is that going to influence your market now? Because I would assume you talked about bringing down the costs of this technology. I, I would imagine that tools and technologies like ChatGPT are going to make this space even more competitive and cheaper to do now. Yeah, I think it's interesting in, in the world where there's, there's, I think there's like some phrase, I don't know where it came from. It's like, first time founders think about product, second time founders think about go to market. Um, and I think I certainly, certainly for this company, that's really true for me. Like user voice was like, oh, let's build the product. And this company it's like, okay, we have good line sight on the product, but like what's going to be our unique go to market? Because that's in a world where it's getting easier and cheaper to build software, how, you know, go to market is often how you need to differentiate. Um, and so, you know, we've kind of put our, trying to put ourselves in a position where we can kind of a unique go to market where we have so much scale that like, yeah, we see tools all every day now hold all the chat GPT and everything else. It's like easier to build some sort of trivial solution to this. It's really hard to build something that works reliably and you can give away for free and you can do that, both those things at scale. Um, and so getting to that scale, it's also part of the reason why we built this product ahead of like a lot of the AI stuff really happened in the last six months, right? Or nine months. We started coming two years ago because we said, well, there's a lot of underlying value in just recording your call really well, transcribing really well, like, you know, automating some of the data and post-call data entry. And as AI stuff comes online, we can basically integrate it into the product, right? We can almost fast follow anything we ever see, right? Um, but the key thing is we need to start early and build up like a head of steam from a go-to-market perspective so that we have this escape velocity so when the market does get crowded or it becomes easy to build these products, yeah, you can build it, but good luck getting distribution on that, right? We're the number one app on Zoom marketplace. We have tons of virality. And at some point that in itself creates a lot of moat where people are like, well, why would I want to go build this? Clearly like Fathom is doing this and I don't want to go compete with them. They've already got a huge head start. Yeah, I think that's a great segue actually into the episode you touched on go-to-market, second time founders focusing on go-to-market versus product. So the theme for today is a mix between your contrarian views and opinions within the context of acquisition, activation and retention. So let's start with acquisition and pitfalls that you've seen and done in the past. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I, I guess one of my contrary opinions, and again, all these things are pretty contextual to the types of businesses you're building. But I think for us, you know, there's generally this gut mindset of like launch early. Uh, and we actually had this approach, I was like, no, I think we should launch late. Um, and what is really the impact of what does it mean to launch? And what I meant by launch late is like, you only get one chance to make a first impression, especially in a market where it's like super crowded. And when you're, you know, getting your first few users, early adopters, there's not that many of those people in the world. And so you really want to launch something that wows them because, you know, 10 years ago, like when I, we, I feel like you could launch the thing and then you could get, the, there's enough bandwidth and there was not so much noise that when you got it, when you made it better, you could tell people again, oh, it's better now. Right? We learned now we made it better. Now it's so competitive and so noisy that if you don't wow someone with like the first contact they have with your product you're really behind because it's easy for them to, oh i checked that product out and it was fine and i'm you know if i hear about it again i'm gonna be like oh, i already looked at it right like that was one of the big takeaways i had from previous companies like you really don't get 
multiple shots at, at, at making an impression with someone makes them want to use their product. And so we actually did a very extended like private beta period and where we really just focused on retention. We kept putting people in and actually first and foremost, like let's not even worry about it. We, we had a hypothesis about how we would do activation and acquisition. Uh, you know, we were going to go after this new, new Zoom marketplace and then from there lever to virality and word of mouth referral. But none of that matters if we've got really leaky user retention. And so, you know, we kept putting, you know, a hundred people a month into the product and seeing how many we kept and for the first, you know, six months, we kept like zero, right? Like we put hundred people in, not a good experience, Some bugs would crop up or like, didn't quite work right. And we finally got to the point where I think for three or four months in a row, we saw the same 50 people over and over and over. Uh, and it's not a big number. It's not like you can go get thousands of people and have like, you know, really robust retention metrics. It was more, no, no, like. We know it's 60 people. Do we keep seeing these 60 people over and over? We do. Let's go talk to them. Oh, they seem to now love it. Okay, we finally crossed the threshold of like, now we've got a product people love. And at that point, we had like no onboarding and no acquisition. It was just like, here, we're going to put a bunch of bits and give you this product, right? And, and we manually do the onboarding. And so that's another thing where I like to do things manually before you try to like automate it. Um, and that pattern repeats itself constantly, right? Um, and so... Once we, once we had like, okay, we got a really good retention. Great. Now let's go build onboarding. Uh, and onboarding for us was, I think, I think that's also a place where people chronically underinvest, right? Um, customer support and onboarding are two places where I see people chronically underinvest for some reason. You know, it's like, it's like you've got this great product that if you get people to it, they'll use it. But if it takes them 30 minutes to, to get it set up and figure out how to use it and you lose 80% of people in the process, not actually the product. Right. And so that was, yeah. So we spent probably nine months on retention and we spent probably an equal amount of time, nine months on like, okay, let's, let's make onboarding better. And that was just a lot of like, okay, iteration. And then once we had that, it's okay. Now that onboarding really good. Now let's go think about how to, what can we do to like create viral loops and get out, right. That drive uh, referral users and stuff like that. And then, so we had that, we do monetization. So I also tend to think about things, doing things in serial. I think a lot of other conventional advice is like, you should be monetizing from day one. Um, and for some products, maybe that's true, but I think for a lot of products, it gets in the way because it's like, you're trying to prove hard enough to prove that it's a product worth using when it's free. So now you're like, oh, it's a product worth using when it's paid. Now you're having to fight three battles at once and I'd rather fight them one at a time. Prove that we can get users to use this when it's free and they stick around. Let's now prove that we can onboard them effectively and efficiently. Let's now prove that they can like, like drive other users. And now let's prove that we can then take those happy free users and monetize them. Um, that's kind of the playbook you see consumer companies run um, a lot of time, but it's pretty rare for B2B companies. But I think if you've got kind of a prosumer B2B model like we do, it can be super effective to kind of take things one at a time and say, no, no, no. we're not going to do four, all four of these things like kind of mediocrely. We're going to do one of them really awesome at the time. How do you sell this to investors? They want to see, you know, returns or some leading indicators of revenue as fast as possible. I think you have to have a narrative. I think you've got to, you know, everything about startups and fundraising is about like, okay, what are the milestones? I'm like, hey, we de-risk this, we de-risk that, right? And so we actually kind of have a unique fundraising where we would basically raise money every six to nine months. And so you can kind of think about milestones that you mentioned around like retention. We've got a working product. Okay, now we have a sticky root working product. Okay, now we have a working product that's getting a lot of users. Okay, now we have a viral working product, right? And so you could use one, each one of those as a milestone to raise a small round around 
And that's basically what we did, right? And we went, okay, great. We, we have a working product. It seems pretty cool. Raise half, like raise a couple million dollars. Oh, great. Now we've launched and we've got this product that is, you know, we're getting a lot of adoption. Great. Let's raise a couple million dollars. Oh, great. Now we've proven about how to let's go raise a couple million dollars. So think the whole you construct the narrative, right? If you're upfront about, no, 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 there's a reason, there's a, there's a strategy behind it. It's not just because we can't do it, right? It's like, no, no, it's like intentional that we, we're going to delay doing this. But we have a good theory about how it's going to work. And I think that was the key thing too, is we actually, we ordered those things in order of risk, right? I actually thought monetization was the lowest risk thing because there were already comps out there like Gong and Chorus that had proven they can get $100 a seat for sales. Now, you know, I looked at what, what it was going to cost us to run the product. I was like, okay, I don't know if we can get $100 a seat, but if they can get $100 a seat, it feels like we can at least get $20 to $30 a seat. Right? So that's how actually the lowest risk thing, right? And then I felt like virality actually is also a low risk thing because I think there's the highest risk thing is just the first part. It's like getting a product people use like over and over again. Um, and I think you tend to see this at the seed stage and pre-seed stage investments. Most investors are looking for engagement metrics. They actually care most about like, is this a product that people continue to say in? Because that's like, do not pass go if you don't have that, right? Um, but what about so, if you have a less sticky product and it's based off yearly contract so they are going to see the value in the poc which can take you know anywhere from let's say 30 to 90 days yeah so that's what i think you have to think i would say i feel very strongly about like you should order these you shouldn't try to things at once but you should rank you should do them in the order of highest risk to lowest risk if you're like at an enterprise b2b product your highest risk might be monetization actually Right. And so you might first and foremost need to prove like, oh, we've got five LOIs for 50K, right? Uh, people will pay money for this. We can't yet prove engagement because right, it's going to take a year for engagement. It's a six month deployment cycle, yada, yada, yada. Right. So that has to come later. And so in that case, you would, and, you know, and there probably isn't a referral loop there. So don't even worry about that. So I think what I'm advocating for is you have to then, you, you should break apart your business into the component pieces and say, okay, this is the highest risk one. We should tackle that first. Um, whatever that might be. How would you advise like founders setting those milestones, the, the financial milestones? Because I feel like a lot of the times there are these random benchmarks or just benchmarks that may not fit every B2B company, even if you're in a similar vertical. You know, it's like, okay, our our goal is $1 million or half a million dollars. But like, it seems very random or the investors are pushing this templatized revenue model and expectations on all the portfolios in a similar vertical i mean what what is your opinion do you have a contrarian opinion on that and how do you go and actually determine realistic revenue goals I, I, for any business type there's like a standard set of like metrics and and kind of like a standard agreed upon, you know, this is what great looks like. This is what good looks like. This is okay. And it's not that good. Right. Like, you know, take like net revenue retention, right? Like, you know, over 120% is considered really good. Uh, and anything over like 104% is insane. Right. Anything less than hundred percent, not good. Right. 120% fine. Right. Um, and I think, you know, uh, for us by rally, right. So you want a K factor over one, right? Like K factor over one, super important. If you're, trying to see your viral company. So I think you have to know, you have to kind of know what these 
what good looks like for what are the centrics are. If you're saying like, hey, the first thing we're going to go do is prove our retention, we need to be able to know like, oh, what does good retention look like? Oh, it's a 90-day user retention of X percent, right? There's a decent amount of materials online. This is what sometimes like things like Y Combinator and stuff do for you is help you like figure out what is the mouse in you? Like, what is good? I think that is one of the challenging things for some uh, folks is like, what are good metrics? And you're right, they can kind of vary, you know, some that maybe for your vertical, it's a little bit different, but they tend to be maxims across all different verticals. And like, no, no, if you're doing a SaaS model, NRR 120% a month more is like really what you want to aim for. And everyone's going to hold you, everyone's going to judge you based upon how, how well you get to that, right? Um, so I think you have to be aware of this. But then you can be smart and play the game of like, okay, great. I'm going to optimize for this metric, right? And I think this other thing is like going back to, I think of, it's better off not to have a number than have a number that's mediocre. So I would rather have, you know, oh, look, we've got, you know, really good virality, but we have zero retention numbers or zero, zero revenue numbers, right? You'd rather have one number that's like in the green. And we have no data on the other ones yet, but we'll get there. But the one thing we've tackled was this one that's in the green, rather than, oh, we've got all the numbers and they're all in the yellow, right? And I think that's the key thing. I saw this happen over and over again with peers. It's like, you'd rather have no data than data that says this is mediocre, right? And so there's a, if you know that, then you can sometimes construct theater around fundraising and knowing like, okay, we're going to go, we're going to fundraise around this metric because we, we feel confident we can get into this green state. And then we're going to actually even blow it out of the water even for a short period of time to, to make it happen. So not just relying solely on revenue as an indicator of success, look at some supporting metrics holistically, because I feel like it's too complicated to just blanket benchmark revenue targets, even if yeah, it's yeah. in a vertical, because, you know, you may be creating a new category that people are trying to understand. Uh, Product maturity may not be hundred percent. Yeah, I, I, I think yeah, I think it's a good point. Which is that like revenue targets in general seem kind of arbitrary, or they can be arbitrary. I, and I care a lot less about them. I care much more about the under like the second order metrics, right? Like, okay, what does our win rate look like? What does our ASP look like? What is our again our churn, our upgrade expansion rates? Like, all of those things are far more. You can actually those numbers tell you what you need to move, right? You're just like oh here's our revenue, it's up or it's down, right? Like the, you're always had to ask the question, like, well, what does the second one metric look like, right? And one of my favorite books is the Bill Walsh book, The Score Takes Care of Itself. And he kind of argues that like, if you know what all the little things are that matter, you should measure yourself on those. If you do all the little things, right? The top line thing will take care of itself. And I think that's very much true. Again, I, I think the same way around like, yeah, that's why I was very confident. Like we don't need to worry about monetization. If we get a product that has high retention, and then we figure out how to onboard people and make it viral, we'll be able to monetize that, right? That's cool. We've got people love the product. They keep sticking with it. There's always a way generally to find a way to get to a pay for that, right? And so, um, yeah, I think I'm a big fan of like know your second or sometimes even better, like your third order metrics. Like, okay, well then what contributes to your churn rate or expansion rate? Like that stuff is generally very unique to your business, right? Everyone's got churn, expansion, whatever revenue. Below that, generally, it tends to be stuff that is very specific to the product you build. So you want to figure out, like, okay, we know that when we see companies, you know, where there's three or more people at a company using the product, that's usually our tipping point for weeds. And so let's look at our lead rate amongst that group and da-da. That's where the cool, that's where the fun stuff happens where you figure out, like, you really have to figure out your business by looking at this third order metric. I'm not sure when last you, you raised or when you 
plan to raise your next round, but how, if you can answer, like how are conversations these days with VCs different from like six months ago, one year ago, if your revenue is not there, can you still tell the story with the things you mentioned now, like those supporting metrics? I mean, there is a campaign, somebody told uh, they just like, they get announced like they're like series A or C and they have zero revenue. Like they, and they just have like runaway user growth sort of thing. It's like it automatically generates a slide deck for you for using AI. Um, I mean, it's a certainly different fundraising market than it was 18 months ago. Um, though it's more impacted on the series B plus series B to pre IPO folks. Then I think they're like the earlier stage stuff is way more insulated. Um, the real problem happened in Series B, C, D, E, pre-IPO, where people looked at public market comps and said, like, okay, we can pay this for it, right? And when public market comps came down 80%, now all those companies are kind of stuck and no one wants to invest in, in that space. But there's still a lot of happening at the pre-seed and C. Uh, a is down a little bit, I think, uh, and then B, C, D is down a lot, it's my understanding. Um, but at the end of the day, it's like the bars has been raised. I mean, there were some crazy things getting funded 18 months ago where I was like, this is very speculative. Uh, we've probably overcorrected the other direction, right? But at the end of the day, if you're building something good, like we've got a good idea and you got your product, like there's always a way to get it funded, right? Is if you've really latched onto the bar's tired. And uh, maybe to wrap up on the acquisition piece, what is your opinion on balancing strategy versus execution? tactics and execution what is your take on over and over strategizing versus actually just doing the work and then waiting for enough data to present itself to allow you to do better strategy yeah i was reading i was reading some investors linkedin the other day and he was like you know moats at the early stage are overrated it's all about execution it's kind of the dirty secret. Investors hate this because like they have a hard time predicting who's going to execute well. In general, I think execution always wins. Having said that, you have to have a strategy. Um, and I think a common mistake I see is people deluding themselves into thinking they have a strategy. For example, like go to market at the early stage. What you typically see is that like most companies have like one marketing channel, not like five or 10. And I think a lot of people delude themselves in thinking like, oh, like we're going to get customers by doing all the things. We're going to do content marketing, we're going to buy ads, and we're going to go to conferences, and we're going to do outbound, and we're going to do this, this, and this. Because that's when you look at large companies, they do all the things. So everyone assumes like, oh, that's what you should do. But if you should go with some stories of every company, it's like, no, 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 like this company got big on paid ads. This company got big on word of mouth. This company got big on outbound. Um, and so I think, especially in go-to-market, more important especially in good market, but also in product, but mostly good market, like you need to have a pretty good strategy and then execute against it, right? It's no good to execute, but like a lot of people seem to think that just doing all the things is the strategy. And I don't think that works. I think go to market is, as I said earlier, one of the hardest places right now because it's so noisy, right? It's like, oh, you think content marketing's gonna work? Why? Like there's a million people doing content marketing now. Oh, you think outbound's gonna work? A million people doing outbound. Oh, you think events are gonna work? Events never worked, right? Like. Um, that sort of thing. So I think that's, I think that's the, one of the big challenges, right? It's like, you've got to have some, like, we've got some, not only some unique perspective on the problem you're solving, but unique perspective on how to get to the people that also have that problem. It's interesting that you mentioned all the 
the channels are becoming so noisy. So yeah. I'm curious to know what I, was yours. What are your different strategies on going to market? Yeah, I mean, I think if you go back like 30 years, 40 years, a lot of this stuff was word of mouth. And then what happened is like word of mouth didn't matter for a while because we had this transition to like online digital life and all these channels opened up. Like for the last 15 years, there's been like a new channel every couple of years, right? There was like, okay, there's there was SEO, there's Google. And then, okay, now there's SEM with paid ads. Okay, so like, uh, and then we had like Facebook apps and then we had kind of like, uh, you know, we had a lot of mobile stuff. And then we had like retarded ads. We got social. You can almost look at every single time there's like a new marketing channel and opened up. There's like one or two or three big businesses that got built off of it, right? Like Zynga, Ehow, you know, uh, Groupon, like you know, almost, you know, two degree. The problem is less and less new channels are opening up now, right? And um, like we got pretty fortunate now, like Zoom opened up a new marketplace and we were one of the first people in that. That doesn't happen very often. There's not many. Now, used to be the marketplace, like the app store marketplaces were like a place to get discovered. Now, good luck getting discoverability in that, right? Like it's not possible. So we are reaching this place where now, I thought it was interesting, said a couple of years ago, it was like the price of acquiring a customer from like calling them on the phone, sending them an email and sending them a piece of mail was conversion on the same price, which makes sense, right? Like these things have been treated reaching equilibrium. And so now I think, you have to, like, we built our own product around word of mouth, right? Like that is, we don't buy ads. We don't do, we don't do blogs. We don't do events. We only do word of mouth. And I think that is, that was like the original you know, marketing channel. And then for a while we all forgot about it because word of mouth got, you know, was annihilated by how much money you could do. And, you know, you get a million users in 24 hours with, you know, paid ads, something like that. So everyone get kind of addicted to these like marketing hacks. And now I think we're getting back to at least from the zero to one phase and seed phase and pre-seed stage. Like, no, you got to get back to like making a product that's awesome enough that people will tell their colleagues about it, right? Or their peers. And that's a much higher bar. And that's why I go back to that, like launch late, build a really great product that people rave about, not just are fine with, right? I think way too many founders, we ourselves, when we're using other product, we know it's like this awesome product. And I tell people about it first, like the thing's fine. But when it's our own product, we often delude ourselves and be like, oh yeah, I've got a great product. But like, if you actually could step outside of it and it's not your baby and just look at it, you're like, this product is fine. It's good enough, right? So many times we're like, oh, well, you technically can do this thing with our product. So therefore it's good enough. That's not nearly the bar. The bar is like, it has to crush that, like that use case. And I think that's the thing I see too often. It's like, we're not honest about your product is fine. And fine doesn't get word of mouth and fine doesn't get press and fine doesn't get funding. It needs to be one of the best in your space. And it needs to like, when, when your friends see it, they're like, oh my gosh, it's fucking awesome. Right. And so I think that's the bar you have to hold yourself to. So it plays a little bit into the chicken and egg philosophy because you need to get those first 100 plus users or if you're in a, in a higher yeah. ticket market, like 10, 15 customers. Yeah, yeah, it takes a little while for word of mouth to kick in, right? Um, but it's not actually true. Word of mouth and B2B products could be, you know, your enterprise company and these guys talked to, you know, you saw the enterprise IT folks and they talked to other enterprise IT folks. Like the one thing is word of mouth has been amplified by social media. So like you can, you know, your customers you're selling to, their most credible voice. Hey, I'm using Fathom and it's fantastic. Like that's, we've walked to a post on LinkedIn about that. Um, but yeah, how do you get those first few folks? Usually it's your network. Usually it's like, you know, or you 
hustle and grind and like, you know, work your own network to get, Hey, I'm looking for someone who has this problem. You know, anyone who gets this thing. I feel like a lot of the startup stuff, do you remember the guy who like traded a paperclip for a house? Like he started with the paperclip and then he like traded the paperclip for something else and traded for something else and traded for something else. I feel very much like the startup game is that, right? You start with the paperclip, like here's, here's your first investment. You're like, you got to find a way to like get to the stateboard and then get to the whatever backpack. Like you've got to find a way to like level up with each trade, right? And so I, there's no, I think, you know, and that's where like the being scrappy and being like, no hustle comes in. But I think, yeah, I think it's mostly going to be your network. It's going to get you your first few folks. They'll be honest enough with you. Like, you know, those folks, if they're a network, will be patient enough to tell you like this, this, this sucks and here's why, right? And you can iterate the product with them. You can't iterate the product with people you don't know, right? Because they'll just pick a cool sucks. Bye. I'm not wasting much time on you. So, uh, and that's why it's so important to continue to build your professional network and why it's also like easier to do startups as you, you know, get more experience in your career, right? Cause you just build a bigger network. So I, I think we hit the, the point where we need to jump to activation. Cause it seems like you have built your business around activation and word of mouth. So what insights can you share that have worked really well? I think so. Uh, I like to separate activation and acquisition, right? I don't know if people always do that. A lot of people just look at like, oh, how many signups did we get today, right? Um, I think it's super important going back to like knowing those third order metrics is knowing, okay, there's a sign up is up to the beginning of or part of the journey. It's not in the beginning actually because there's the beginning of their journey with you starts before they sign up, but it's an arbitrary beginning of where you see their journey. Where's they hit the aha moment? Where is it that you get them to where it's like, okay, now they, they really understand what your product is, right? And so, you know, for us, we struggled with this for a while. And one of our big insights in the first year of Adam was like, oh, we did the analysis and found that like, oh, once you get to your third call with us, great. You, that's a tipping point where it's like, okay, you've used Fathom enough, you kind of get it. And as you get the three calls, we're going to be, yeah, you're going to stick around and be pretty sticky and tell your friends. And so that was a super important thing to learn because then we, Orient all of our stuff around, not just getting you signed up, but like, what are all the things we need to do to get you to a third call? So we would do like unique things where it's like, after your first call, we'd send you an email and say, Hey, we'll pay you 20 bucks to tell us how that first call went. Right. And like, you know, just we're maniacal about like trying to get feedback in those first few calls to understand what we're causing people not to get to the third call. Um, you know, it, if we hadn't known that we might've just been like, Oh, we got them to sign up. Great. Like we're done. Right. And we would have realized that, okay, we, the job isn't done until we get you to that activation point. So it's the biggest thing about activation is just figure out what activation is for your product. Because that's what, this is definitely one metric that, you know, everyone's revenue is the same, everyone's signups are the same. Activation, I think, is this really interesting moment where you figure out where's the moment in your product that like someone, it's their aha moment, right? And then building everything around getting people to that aha moment as quickly as possible, right? Um, and so like we learned a ton of things and like, and we probably spend nine months on that. Right. And I think all these things tend to take nine to 12 months to do them. Well, it's a lot of like iteration and learning, you know, user research and building product, improving product, et cetera, et cetera. With inactivation at some point comes the word of mouth. So what have you found or done that really can accelerate and activate word of mouth? It, 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 it turns out we thought these things came later. We thought like, we also thought you had to hit your aha moment before you tell people about your product. That's 
somewhat true. Um, it turns out people will tell people early. It's like, sometimes you can find like their peak excitement is when they're early in a product. If you wait too late to try to get them to tell people, they've now habituated the product. And so they're not as excited about it. It's kind of like this, you know, this is about humans work, right? Like we try out that, that new restaurant the first time we go, it's amazing. And the 10th time we go, we're like, well, my favorite, like, you know, it's not the same experience. And so, you know, I think counterintuitively we thought like, oh, we should ask you to refer people once you were really deep into your journey with us. But no, at that point it became the magic of worn off a little bit. We actually need to ask you earlier in your journey to do that. So you're actually asking people to refer you in before you've even built like a really solid relationship. Yeah, you make it optional, right? Like what you find is like most people will take that, but there are some people that are like really like, you know, often they've heard it themselves from someone else. Oh, I heard about this from Tim. Now I'm signing up and I'm super excited and I just tried it and like, oh, like, you know, just my first call with it. It was amazing. I want to tell everyone about it, right? Like, um, so it, it, some of the, like the curve of aha, and I'm going to stick with this is different than the curve of. And, and how are you activating that? Are you building the referral word of mouth into the product or are you actually asking after the call? Yeah, it, it's funny in the same way that I like said that I think like you only need like one marketing channel in the beginning. You generally need like multiple features to do a thing. Um, so example, like, you know, getting good activation, good onboarding is not one silver bullet. It was... I literally have a notion page of like 300 little changes we made to get us from like a 25% onboarding rate to an 80% onboarding rate. Right. And it was, there was no, I don't remember actually being any big silver bullets in there. It was just like, okay, we're going to get this thing 5% better every day. Right. And like between the two. And I think the same thing is true for this stuff is there's generally, you know, back in the day, there was like, you know, a lot of these viral things have been like, oh, connect your, you know, connect your contacts. We'll spam out your whole thing. But, yeah, people are savvy to that now. So you can't really, there's no big silver bullets. It's like, it's all the things, right? It's like, oh, after the call, ask them, hey, you know, reminders, hey, here's an easy way to share this. Uh, it, so it's like light speed bumps and like light prompts, nothing blocking, right? Just kind of like, and you also, I think it's helpful when you frame things like, hey, we love your help. Like, tell a friend uh, or, you know, we give you points for referral and like these points turn into a, a raffle and the raffle, like you can win a thousand dollars every month and da da So, but none of those things were like a 50% difference. Each one of them was like a 5% difference. And you just got to stack a lot of 5% improvements. Yeah, because I, I remember in my past life and also during the pandemic, this tactic of like, hey, we'll give you $100 for taking a demo or we'll right. give you AirPods for taking a demo. But maybe those tactics could work if you used it in the right moment and sparingly. So do that once you've actually made a connection with the person instead of spraying and praying and getting a bunch of people in just for the swag. Yeah, the, the, I, I do love that shift because it was, you know, crazy to me how much people would be like, oh yeah, we're happy to spend $300. Right? You know, we're, our customer acquisition cost is $5,000. You know, we, you know, we bought this booth at this conference and we run these paid ads. And then the idea that you give someone fifty dollars to take a demo with you seemed crazy and like reckless. And I was like, I don't know, that feels a lot more directionally accurate than like the booth you bought for fifty k, right? It's just a matter of what things become normalized. Um, so yeah, I think it's again, it goes back to like whatever it is. You have to. Just, I think the best stuff is like switch and go to market. Is trust your own instincts of what you would want as a buyer. Like, would this work on you? If not, maybe the old step glove it. Right. 
Because I think it's really easy, especially if you're a technical founder, to fall into thinking you've got to, you don't know anything about marketing and sales. And so therefore you need to like, just follow whatever blueprints you read online. Most of the blueprints you read online are five years out of date, right? Most people are like, oh, they should tell you, you should do content marketing. Yeah, you should do content marketing. If you had a time machine, you go back to 2015 and do a blog, you should absolutely do that. But should you do it now? Probably not, right? Like, so I think just operates on first principles, like how would you want to be sold to and how would you want to start using a product? This may not be completely tied to activation, but I, I remember it from our last call and I wanted to share it with the audience because I thought it was a really interesting debate. You told me that you were against, and correct me if I'm wrong, because it was a while ago, you, you said that you actually don't recommend having free trial and paid on your website at the same time. Can you explain your reasoning and your thought process on why you, you believe that? Yeah, I think the, the, the point I was thinking of is that like, people are pretty savvy now. I think sometimes also, you know, there's like, it's really easy to, to delude yourself and think like, oh, you know, you just, these customers are stupid or whatever. Like, you know, no one gets, it's like, no, no, people generally are pretty savvy. And when you have like a pricing page that has a free version and a paid version, people generally know they're not going to be able to get by on the free version. That like, you've probably instrumented in such a way that like, they're going to have to pay to the paid version, right? So like, it used to be kind of, these things were new and people weren't sure about like, you know, you know, oh, free was like this whole kind of hack that people use your product. And then you, and then now they're walked into your product and then they, they had to pay to upgrade. Now everyone's had that experience a million times that they're savvy to it. Like we don't, it's part of the reason we don't do it. We're a completely free product. Uh, we have a separate product we sell to managers, but our core product that people use to take notes or, you know, on their calls is completely free, no pricing page. And that's intentional because we, we don't want, like, we're not playing any tricks, right? We're trying to basically say like, no, no, like we want you to use this. We don't want you to have a reservation. But even then we had a bunch of people that were like, are you excelling my data? Like what's the, what's the catch here? Right. And so I think if you, you just need to be aware of when you're building your business model, being aware of that, like users are pretty sophisticated and pretty savvy. Right. And so if you think you're going to get a bunch of free user adoption, which is then going to, you know, trap people in and get them to pay a ton of money. No, they're going to generally see right through that. Right. So you're better off being really, you might be better off just saying, cool, look, let's be honest, this thing's going to cost you a hundred bucks a month. And which is fine, people, yeah, fine, we'll give you a one month trial rather than thinking your free version is going to seduce people into using a product and then getting stuck and forcing them to convert. But couldn't you make the argument that your free version or your, your free trial, your freemium, there's less obstacles or friction for them getting to know your product without having to speak to a salesperson? Like maybe they sure. want to certify yeah, yeah. it on there's their own. There's still a lot of that. But again, that's right. They're like, that's a trial then. Let's be honest. Like, be like, oh, we're going to give you a trial of this so you can touch the product and use it. And I think in this day and age, like everyone hates to like take a demo, right? Everyone wants to at least touch the product themselves and see, make sure the build quality is good and et cetera, et cetera. So, but, but you can give a fully functional free trial too versus a freemium product, which is light, but it's yours forever and you don't have to speak to sales. Correct. Yeah, I, I think this, what I'm really pointing out is that like, a lot of people aren't intentional about which of these things their buyers actually need, right? Um, and they're kind of like, we're just, again, throwing out, they go, oh, we're gonna, we should have a free version. Well, why, right? Again, maybe you don't need a free version, what you need is a free trial. Maybe what you don't need a free trial is a POC. What you need is a POC. Well, you, yeah, and so I think, you know, you just need to be really intentional, like, what is the problem this thing solves? 
right? right? Is it that people need to touch the product first? Is it that people need to deploy the product first? Is it that people need to actually use it for two months? Like, what is the, what is the thing? We're kind of running up on time. So to quickly wrap up, is there anything in retention, maybe just a 60 second closing out statement? Retention's generally done at a much smaller sample size. So like the other thing with this is like, you need a couple hundred signups a day to really dial in activation, right? In acquisition. And you need a couple thousand people like to be on dial in referral loops and stuff like that, or like the numbers get smaller. Retention is the number one thing where you have to figure it out with a couple hundred people or less, at least in the beginning. And so really it forces you to build a really good qualitative feedback loop as opposed to the other ones can be quantitative, right? So for onboarding, we, we just look at the onboarding rates, we don't have signups. We just, we looked, that was a data thing that was then supported by qualitative interviews. It's a reverse for retention, right? Retention is going to be all about, you're going to, you're going to see the data that they continue to use you every day, but you need to spend, to get to that retention, you usually need to talk to those folks a lot. And I think that's the other thing most people don't do is like build in rigor and structure around constant qualitative feedback for our current users. Which is another reason why people should uh, invest in your tools. So <laughs> maybe we'll uh, end off there. It was a pleasure. You could see I could continue speaking for hours, but thank you so much for yeah. taking time out of your day. And if anybody wants to reach out, connect with you, where's the best place uh, to reach out? Yeah, just ping me on LinkedIn. Awesome. All right. Thanks for having me, Brendan. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Founder Pack Podcast with Brendan Rod, part of the ITSB Magazine Podcast Network. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share the channel and itsbmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey.